Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 133rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Dana Jacobs. Dana is the co-founder of Legacy Care Wealth and Inspired Vision Accounting, a combination of financial planning and small business accounting firms that serve nearly 80 high-income next-generation clients. What's unique about Dana, though, is that she launched her advisory firm and accounting practice jointly with her brother, where she focuses on the financial planning and he focuses on the accounting and tax planning as they grow the businesses together. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Dana's firm works with next-generation clients, their blended fee model of charging $150 to $250 a month for ongoing planning advice that shifts into an AUM fee as their client's savings and portfolio grows, the four-meeting financial planning process that all clients go through, the unique ongoing monthly report tracking client cash flows and growth and net worth that they use to show their clients' progress and help justify their ongoing monthly fee, and the way they divide up their rotation of quarterly planning meetings for clients between tax planning, debt repayment, insurance matters, and an overall annual review, with a structured agenda that Dana uses for every client meeting covering their accomplishments since the last meeting, current discussion topics, and key client takeaways that become the client's homework for the next meeting. We also talk about how Dana and her brother grew the business in the early years, the way they leveraged their differentiation as being some of the only fee-only CFP professionals in their area willing to work with young clients with no minimums as a way to get clients through local SEO and the CFP boards find a CFP professional site, the way they've been able to bring in small business owner clients by starting with their bookkeeping needs first. And why Dana doesn't regret walking away from her prior salary, working in a major firm, and taking the leap to go out on her own, even though it took nearly five years to get back to her prior income. And be certain to listen to the end, where Dana shares why she decided to go out on her own and start an advisory business with her brother, and then start her own family and have two children, the way that she balanced early motherhood in the early stages of the business, and how early on she hid the fact that she started a firm with her sibling, but now embraces the story as a way to further differentiate the firm. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Dana Jacobs. Welcome, Dana Jacobs, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I always enjoy kicking off podcasts and getting underway and just new new guests, new stories. And, uh, uh, you know, someone had asked me the other day, like, is is there a point where you just wind down the podcast because you, you run out of guests that you want to talk to? I'm, I'm thinking, well, it's about 300,000 financial advisors and we're about 130 odd episodes in. So no, I don't think we're going to run out anytime soon. There's there's still a lot of cool, cool guests and stories, and oh, and, and I'm excited for yours. You are, I think, the like the first of a new of a new category of of guest for us, which is an advisor who launched a firm with a sibling. We've had like parent child, you know, a father son, father daughter, daughter son, daughter daughter. Like we've had we've had parents and children before. I, I as far as I can recall, I don't think I've ever talked to an advisor who did a launch with a sibling though and 
I, I'm kind of curious to hear more as we get into this, how that's gone. Because I, I think for a lot of advisors, just in general, that whole process of launching a partnership, like a real partnership firm, not just, hey, you do your thing, and I'm gonna do my thing. And we'll like, split an office space and an admin staff, like shared expenses, you just making a, a real partnership business has a lot of pressure to really define roles and responsibilities and who's good at what and who's going to contribute what to the partnership. And I feel like that's that's hard for a lot of advisors in general. I can only imagine how much more complex that gets when you put sibling dynamics in the in the mix as well. And so I, I think I'm both excited to hear just the the path and the journey for the firm because you're doing some neat uh, stuff and blending together planning and tax, but also what it's like to try to figure out all these roles and responsibilities with the sibling. Yes. So, I mean, just to get started, you know, Rob and I, we've always been super close. I'm, we're three years apart. I'm the older sister. He always drove me nuts in many different ways, which I tell him all the time to my face and to our clients. And he loves that. But he, you know, one thing that like, you know, it drove me nuts was just that he's so, he was an intuitive genius, always very creative, very smart. And I would be like, the super diligent student. I did every single assignment. I remember one time in sixth grade French, I forgot my homework. That was like the only time I can remember. And I was in tears and I pulled the teacher aside ahead, you know, in advance. I just was like that kid. And with that said, I had to go through every lesson and every homework assignment to really get to that level of understanding and comprehension that I was comfortable with. My brother, on the other hand, was one of those, you know, osmosis learners. And he always did had good grades, but he just like, he didn't have to do quite so much to get there. <laughs> and it drove me nuts. But I mean, I always acknowledged like his sort of intuitive genius. And it just floored me, always floored me. So we were always very close, but we were always polar polar opposites. My mom called us like cookies and cream. We were come from a Puerto Rican Sicilian family and I have like the darker skin tone, the darker hair and eye color. And my brother pops out with very fair skin, blonde hair and blue eyes. Like we just, we've just always been this sort of balance of one another and polar opposites. But because of our upbringing and I credit our parents so, so much for this, we've learned to, we always embraced our differences. I always knew he'd handle something differently than I would. I think we gave up trying to convince one another that our way is the better way. Like, so, so, so many years ago. And um, that, just go ahead. Was that something about what like your parents tried to instill in you? Or was that just uh, you were so different, eventually you gave up and just decided to embrace each other's differences? Yeah, just a combination. Like we, you know, we just, I just always knew, like, I remember our parents just disciplining us different and us having different sets of rules and them explaining why we had to have different sets of rules. And that was just sort of okay. And we just sort of accepted that and joked about it and teased each other about it, but all in a very like, you know, from a place of like, support and understanding and just ribbing because we're siblings and not from like a contentious place. And I think that very much carries through today into the business. So our dad was in financial services. He worked his way up from a runner, you know, on Wall Street, you know, all the way up to being a managing director. And so he had a lot of experience there. And so when we both were in our respective fields, we sort of or in our, you know, education background and then starting business, we sort of assumed we would be in financial services in one some way, shape or form. And we had always joked or sort of half-heartedly said, oh, we should run a business together someday, but had no real plan for it at that phase in life. Like when you're in high school and college and we first started our careers, it wasn't really on the radar of saying, you you get this experience, I get that experience, someday we'll start a business together. It really just didn't happen that way. So were you were you in were you both going to school for 
econ business, something financial services? Like if your father was in the industry, were you from the start all studying to come this direction? I I sort of was because I you know, go, you know, have to go in order of everything. I had an econ undergrad degree. Um, I went to a super liberal college, so they didn't have like a business program. The best they had was just an economics major. And so I did that. And then I also had, I was a double major in Italian more because I wanted to study abroad in Italy. And then by the time I got back from my study abroad experience, they're like, oh, if you just take two more classes, you'll have a major. I was like, oh, that's easy enough. So that just sort of came together. Rob dabbled a little bit more. Again, my creative, intuitive Brother. And he, so he was um, in in engineering, and I think he chemistry, I think, and then he landed, I think, with a physics and uh, poli sci double major. By the time he graduated, it's quite a journey unto itself. Yes, and that's just, and, and again, that's how we're different. But he, I mean, he actually credits my feedback to him for that journey, and which was that when I was applying for business positions, you know, a bit someone with business background or econ background was a dime a dozen. But at that point, if someone had a science degree or a science background or something a little bit different that they could bring something different to the table, they were actually sort of more desirable as a potential candidate for a hire as opposed to someone who just had a more traditional business background. And so I was giving him that feedback because so he was starting, you know, we were four grades apart. So he was starting college right when I was finishing it and I had done summer internships and been through this application process a couple of times. And I was just sharing that with him. So he said, you know what, I'm not going to pursue business. He said, I'm going to and and the way again the way his brain works he's like you know going towards sciences made a lot of sense for him and so he said i'm just going to do that and and really he's like i learned how to problem solve i learned how to think and that's what employers wanted and that's what sort of lent the most to my future and he will still say the same thing like when he's looking at a financial plan or trying to, to solve a tax issue he says it's still all those same problem solving skills of that he like I don't know, credits back to his physics major that really, you know, gives him what he needs to be able to get the job done that. And again, just that he's, he, he really is a very smart man. It drives me nuts. So, so you finished, so you finished school, you graduated with an econ and Italian degree. So did you come straight into the industry from there? I did. I worked for Lehman Brothers, actually. I worked. Well, that was that was good timing, huh? Yeah, I started there about a year plus before they went bankrupt, which you know I say this time and time again, and I feel terrible saying it. While Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, I know was a global disaster and and served many people very poorly. Um, for me in my career personally, it actually was a, a wonderful opportunity to have to see and go through that experience. Literally, you know, it's something out of a movie where we. We thought we were going bankrupt. We thought we were getting bought. We thought we were going bankrupt again. You know, the MD was in the corner office, comes out, stands on the big desk. We all gather around. He makes an announcement. Part of the business was being bought by Barclays. It just was like, it was a big, you know, all of it was a big deal. Every quarter leading up to bankruptcy, you know, the Thursday before we knew there were going to be layoffs. And so we knew like every desk was pretty much losing a head. And so it just, we, we, it, that whole experience was just really out of this world. We were working really hard. We were working a lot of hours or a lot of things that were needed at the time. And then post-bankruptcy, it was so funny because some desks like couldn't touch their computers and other desks were just like swamped with work. Um, and so I was on one of the desks that happened to be 
you know, acquired through Barclays. We had to revamp all of our products offerings. We, so we were collaborating with the product and support teams, the IT teams, and then the client services teams to make sure that, so I was sort of on that development team specializing in all of those integrations and commandeering how, what that process looks like. Yeah. High, which High dollars, highly intense, compressed timeline. I'm presuming like it was lar- crazy. large numbers of hours. <laughs> yes. It was absolutely nuts. Which, but otherwise, it, it was sort of a boring job until bankruptcy, and then bankruptcy happened, and I really, I got <laughs> and so then much it's a growth opportunity. Yeah, it really was. It really was. So, so that for me was a good thing, and that's actually how I landed from there onto the client services desk, and there we were working with ultra high net worth clients, and they all had family offices and CFPs running their family offices, and I was just floored that how much the CFP understood about the client's financials, you know, where their accounts are held and the estate planning implications, the tax planning implications, where we were really just product focused. Not saying all financial services industries are like this or all advise, you know, investment advisors are, you know, are like that, but but I think the history of the industry tends to have more of a focus on product and sales and it's trying to change and evolve, but with these larger institutions it just takes that much longer to shift. Well, and and, and I guess and you were just you were literally on a product desk for the first couple of years. I was initially, but then at that point I was on client services, but it still was very much product sales oriented, which, and so I just was seeing that misalignment. I wasn't comfortable with it. And I, I said, I want to know my client's finances as well as they do when I'm suggesting a recommendation, when I'm making a recommendation. And so at that point, I went back to school. I got my MBA, I got my CFP. And then at the same time, Rob was you know, coming out of school he was working, same thing, retail um, client services, and he was just racking up designations. And when he was taking a CFP, he said, oh, tax is my weakest category, as it is for most of us. So he said, I'm just going to start doing tax preparation. So he starts working for his then-girlfriend, now wife's parents' accounting firm. And he's been doing tax prep, ever, you know, ever since. Um, he's like, I'm going to become an enrolled agent. So now it's really, it's a, it's a huge strength of his. Whereas it started as a weakness, and so we both were just sort of seeing this like misalignment where we wanted to have more global understanding of what's going on for our clients. And our other big tenant was we were seeing all of our peers at that time having all these financial questions and not really having a place to go to get answers. And again, this is a similar sort of XYPN story. A lot of us sort of see that same need, but it's just like, you know, you do you buy the house where we live in the New York city area. Property values are just so, so high. A lot of people are dual income earners. So they have their kids in daycare and they're trying to cover the daycare expense. And so there just was a, a big need for more financial information. And so we just both sort of came to this, how we had similar aha moments at the same time. I remember we called like a family meeting with our spouses and parents. So the six of us got together around the dining room table and just sort of said, this is the vision for the business. And like ask for feedback and how do we go about it? Um, we did this just at the same time as XY Planning Network was coming together. So we thought we were making it up because we didn't know about other people doing it at the time. And we, when we started sort of talking about it, people thought we were crazy. People in the financial services industry said, you're not going to make money that way. You know, I'm like, I'm charging a fee for service. Like, a lot of other folks. And so, and I think that's what makes sense for our target client. That's really what they need. They have cash flow, they don't have assets yet, you know. And so we were developing this strategy and this idea around the business together with our families. We knew it was going to be family 
you know, family focused business from day one. And so that's really the genesis of, of where, you know, the financial planning firm came from. And date like on those early days, we did every, we wrote every email together. We did everything together, even though, like I said, I know we're very different, but we collaborated on everything. And then as the businesses grew and we, we already knew our strengths, but we found that we were able just to independently focus on those. He then took on more of the, you know, tax related matters. And I took on more of the financial planning related matters. And in the beginning, we actually just started doing bookkeeping for a lot of our clients were entrepreneurs, just because they're like, Hey, can you just do this for me? And so we're like, okay, sure. Yeah, we know how to do that. We can do that. And then it was tax season. They're like, Oh, can you, you already know all my stuff. Can you like file my taxes for me? And we're like, okay, yeah, we can do that. So we just sort of organically grew out that business. And honestly, in those early days, that was almost our side hustle to keep the lights on for the financial planning business. So it was really, it became very easy to then get new bookkeeping and tax prep clients. It's harder to scale that business is, you know, what we knew and what that's the place we're at right now, where it takes a lot more to continue to scale that business. But in those early years, it was easier to grow. And so Rob then sort of began managing that side of the business and eventually, and, you know, pretty quickly became big enough that we said, you know, we need a separate LLC. So we've rolled it out completely as a, its own entity. And so now we have two different businesses, Legacy Care Wealth for Planning, Inspired Vision Accounting for Tax Preparation and Accounting Services. And I pretty much manage the planning and he pretty much manages the tax. But then there's, you know, for every financial planning meeting, Rob is in there for almost every almost every meeting with our clients. Um, you know, I sent him everything in advance. He reviews it. He gives me feedback on it, but I'll be the one that dives in and I do a lot of the planning. I manage our power planner and admin. I manage all the client communications back and forth and organization of all the aspects that goes into the plan, the implementation, the follow through. And then conversely, I help on an admin level and managerial level sort of on the booking bookkeeping tax prep side of the business because, you know, he needs a little more help with the organization there. So we just sort of, it wasn't, you know, while we've had conversations around it over the years, when you work with a sibling, there is also so much intuition and you just, you just know that person to their core in a way that it takes longer to, a lot longer to get there with someone that you just meet from, you know, your various professions. And so that's where, we have so much intuition and trust. Like I know how he's going to handle something. And, and we had so many conversations in those early days about our joint mission and our joint vision for these firms that, you know, all the other things that we're doing are still aligned with that still core vision that I, I know we're both on the same path towards. So it's a lot easier to trust everything else as well. And, and he's my brother. He only wants the best for me and I for him and our respective families. So. So that I think helps a lot knowing that there's, you know, that other person is looking out for you in a way that someone else that you might meet that you're exploring a business opportunity with might not quite have that same um, deep level of commitment to your wellness. So it takes takes more understanding. Yeah. You know, there's there's kind of that, I don't know, that dating get to know you process of trying to figure out whether you want to work with someone as a, as a business partner and go into business with them and just trying to get familiar with them and, and, even after you do, sometimes it takes years before business partners really get that level of trust. And yeah, I, I get it. You know, when 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 you're already coming to it after 25 plus years of having been together as family, you kind of got through some of that early stage stuff already. Like I know this person and what they do and how they think already. So I, I guess for better or worse, you, you you know exactly what you're getting at that point. Exactly. And so I think a lot of times with siblings, it's still hard because like. Look, 
every person I meet, they're very different from their sibling. I, you know, I see it in my own family. I now have two sons. And it's so funny when you have your own kids, for some reason it surprises you. I don't know why. Like I know how different I am from my siblings. I know how different, you know, the other people, my family and friends like are from their siblings. And yet you have your firstborn and you're like, okay, it's the same family, same parents, same genes, same household. And then you have your second one. And it's like, they pop out just totally like they have their own personalities it, it, from day one. Yes, it it blew us away. It blew us away as well. Both the different the differences from one to the next as we had our first and our second, and then all the all the gender differences as we went from the second to the third because we had two girls and then a and then a little boy. And it's like I swear we're not doing things that differently. I know you relaxed a little by the third kid. You're a little more tense of on the course. first, but like. I swear we're not doing things that differently, but like, this is going completely differently with this kid. (laughs) Wow. Okay. That's just bundled right in them, apparently. Yes. I mean, probably energy. I mean, that's my household. It's the energy that comes out of these little people, especially the boys. And I only have two boys. So, but I mean, I see it with my friends and stuff like that. It's just, it's, it's crazy. And I know it's a gross generalization, so it's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. And you're just like, Oh my god! And, and honestly, and me and my brother, we're we're textbook firstborn, secondborn. My babies, they're textbook firstborn, secondborn. And you're like, but I, I really don't think I'm doing anything that differently. And so, for some reason, it continues to surprise yeah. us. And, and ours are too. And I, like, it strikes me because I was I was a psychology major, and like, I literally remember going through and learning all the research about like Adler's birth order research of here's how firstborns are, and then here's how the middleborns are, and then here's how the youngest are when you've got three or more, and then you know. Decades later, I'm now starting my family and doing this and watching it play out. I'm like, oh my God, it's all true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a little disturbing. Right. So I think the struggle with siblings, though, is because you're so different, a lot of times you try to change the other person or you you're so rooted in your own perspective that you struggle to understand where the other person is coming from. And but I think for us again, I credit my parents and then also just like our life experiences. I know he's different. I know he's going to do something differently, but but it doesn't mean it's necessarily the wrong way. And I understand his perspective and I understand why doing something for him a certain way will work better for him and therefore all of us in the end than if I tried to force my approach on him. Well, and I, I feel like that's a challenge for almost any partners in the business. I, I'm afraid there's probably a, a marriage metaphor in there as well about trying not to change your spouse and accept them for for who they are. But I've seen that play out, I think, just in in businesses in general when you're trying to get into partnerships and and just at some point you have to get to a, a you know unless unless you form a partnership with your clone, in which case it actually probably won't be a much better business because you you you're just doing more of the same thing. You get no new perspectives and no new skills if you clone yourself. You know, it, unless you're working with your clone, like you're going to end out with someone who does things different than you do, will handle at least some situations differently than you do. And I, I think to me, one of the biggest reasons why I see advisor partnerships blow up is one or both just can't get comfortable with that at the end of the day. Like, they, you know, he or she is not doing it the way I would have done it. And and that becomes the deal breaker. And it's like, well, at some point you have to say it's not whether they do it the way you would have done it. It's did they do it in a way that you know meets the meets the core values you have 
and gets the business in the direction of where it needs to go. <laughs> but you're not going to do it the same way. And and arguably, that's actually good. That's how you get more skill sets and different perspectives and, and can even avoid blind sides in the business. But it's so hard, I think, for so many of us to just, particularly when we start as solos, that you you start the business with a vision of like, here's how it should be. That's why I'm making this business. Like I'm making my independent firm because I want it to be the way that I want it to be. And then it gets really hard when you have to bring in a partner who's like, yeah, that's totally cool, but I'm going to do it a different way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would imagine starting as a solo and then trying to partner up after the fact, it depends on how you handle it. I mean, I'm sure there's a way to do it and remain somewhat siloed in some parts of it that help maintain your independent integrity and then just but then have sort of the the group dynamic around a lot of your support services and and more of the ongoing operations that probably makes sense but I, I i don't know i'm just trying to imagine starting the business by myself and then having to introduce someone else new into something that was sort of my baby that has a lot more i think i don't know it, it sounds it sounds more complicated than what i felt starting with my brother was, which was that we knew that we had this joint vision, we knew we had this joint trust, and we sort of took all those steps together instead of having to hand over the reins on my baby to someone right. else. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and it, uh, I mean, it strikes me. We actually had a prior guest on the on the podcast. It was episode seventy seven with with Tanya Rapaz, and you know, her whole business is essentially either a helping partners. That are that are like have reached this conflict stage and are having problems and need to work out their differences, or she's got a whole service called Partnership Resource where they basically do compatibility assessments. Like it's sort of the like the business partner version of I don't know, like a dating eHarmony profile thing. Like not not that she does the matchmaking, but you know, two people come together and are trying to figure out like okay, you know, we chit chat well together, but can we actually work together as business partners and and she's got a whole assessment process just to help people figure out you know, if you enter this partnership, are you going to end out finding later that you've got such differences in views or perspective, approach or values? And like, not that you have good values and I have bad values, but just that we may value different things. You, know, you, you take two people, one of whom just wants to do the business for very altruistic reasons, and the other that wants to do the business for you know an entrepreneurial growing and scaling endeavor. And like, there's no right or wrong to those. Both of them can serve clients well, but you know, if one person wants to scale the profits and the other one wants to give the profits away, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> right. There's an inherent conflict there. Yes, absolutely. And that sounds really interesting. And I think a big part of that too is if when you go through that process, if you do decide to continue to work with someone, it's hopefully then you have more perspective and understanding. Like, and then you can hopefully not harbor anger or resentment or those like more negative conflicting emotions, which honestly, again, as a entrepreneur, that kind of stuff trickles through <laughs> when, 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 and, and with that said, like Rob and I, certainly we have conflicts. Absolutely. And sometimes it's personal and sometimes it's professional and sometimes it's a very blurry line. And over the six and a half years that we've had this business, I've had two kids. We've had a very sick family member that we've both been um, very much involved in caring for. We had two grandparents pass. Again, we're the part of the family that manages a lot of all the logistics that goes into all of that. So so there's been a lot of stuff that that arises, but I think for us we keep coming back to like 
that under that understanding and knowing that that's there and you know you can work through it but but when you have strife it, it trickles through to how efficient you are and how you start your day and and every minute matters when you're the one that's driving everything and so you know it's helpful to be in a place is what i'm finding that that you know you try to keep all that you know, somewhat reduced or keep it at bay or, or have it channeled in a healthier way. And so we're, I think that's, you know, something that we we're definitely always learning more about and always looking to learn more about as well. But we do a pretty good job of like, when there's a conflict on the professional front, he still will come over for a holiday or something for my kids and is like hundred percent uncle Rob or uncle Wob, like the little one says, and is like very present and loving with my kids. And like that, honestly, that always coming back to that part of it, like the, the more, personal relationship we have as siblings and, you know, um, with the family sort of always helps heal a lot of other things that again is a benefit that some other, you know, business partners don't necessarily get to have. So talk to us a little bit about the business itself, or I guess the businesses, since you've got a, a planning business and a, and a tax and accounting practice. So maybe let's, let's start on the, the planning side of the business. So just talk to us a little bit about legacy wealth care, you know, uh, how big is the firm? Who do you serve? What do, what does that look like? Yeah, so we have about eighty active clients, like at m- most given times, which includes our. We do have some percentage AOM. We have ongoing clients, and then we also have clients that we're doing sort of more upfront financial plans for or specific projects for. So the relationships do break out into many different forms. However, most of it looks like a typical. Our target client really is a Henry. Um, and so that's high earning, not rich yet. Again, a lot of young families in our area because we're close to New York City. Dual income, probably student loans, trying to buy a house or just bought a house, trying to have a family or has a young family. And they're just trying to figure out, I mean, one party had seven 401ks from old employers, you know, and they're trying to find that right balance of sh- how much do I put towards retirement? How much do I need for the down payment on the house? Can I afford this house? What if there's a job transfer? How many children should we really plan for? What's daycare costs really going to look like? How much insurance do I really need? I know I probably need a will. What does that process look like? You know, I've read about a three to six month emergency fund. I can't get there. How do I get there? What's the best use of my credit cards? And and we we sort of work through all of those questions. It's a very, very common Well, I see and what strikes me about all those is is like virtually everything you said of all the things they're dealing with that you're doing and helping them with has nothing to do with retirement planning. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a factor. It, it is like, okay, are you contributing to your 401k and how much and are you meeting your employer match? And we definitely look at that. But it's a balancing concern. And also for tax reasons, you know, we want to make sure we're making contributions. But so it, it's balancing that concern with seven other balls that they have in the air at any given, almost none of them have disability insurance, you know, so it's, uh, there are so many other aspects of financial planning that we have to really dive into with our clients. And it's not just retirement planning. Whereas when you do have a target client base, who's in more of an accumulation phase and in the 40, you know, you know, in their forties, um, it's really just making sure we're planning for, you know, college education for children and retirement planning is like more of a core focus. So it's, it's just less balls that we're juggling. So yeah, that's, that's really what most of our clients look like. With that said, we have clients all ages, all life circumstances. It really comes down to a very goal-based oriented and holistic approach to financial planning. And so we do have clients that are 
about to be retirees or early retirees or even some late retirees that they still very much like the experience of working with us but they just sort of fall a little bit less into like what our target client looks like yeah and so what's the what's the business model for clients i mean you kind of mentioned like there's some upfront planning there's some ongoing stuff there's some aum so like how do these get structured what do you do exactly Yeah. So most of our clients, the process for most of our clients looks like they come in, they meet with us, they decide if they want to work with us, they sign off on the client agreement, and we start an upfront financial plan. And that typically is a three to four meeting process in which we sort of dive deep and we the, we ask for copies of all their statements. We do use e-money, so we have them get set up on e-money for most of our clients. And then we present back to them for the next meeting a summary of their facts, and we ask a ton of questions based on all the stuff we saw in their accounts, and did you know about this, and what about that? And and then we also try to get really precise about their goals. Then, So the next meeting, when we sit down again, we say, okay, this is what your life looks like from now until age 90 or 95, based on all the things we talked about from the past two meetings. And we know that life will change. But our guideline is if we can establish a roadmap that everyone's on board with and we can start implementing a plan when shifts happen in life as they inevitably will, we'll know how to recalibrate and adjust. And we won't just be putting our head in the sand for another six months or a year and not really knowing what to do next. So so we do a full boat financial plan. And then the very last meeting, assuming everyone's on board with the financial plan, we will do an implementation guideline. So we make recommendations all throughout. They have homework every time they meet with me. I'm always chasing people on homework. That's like most of my job these days. But for that implementation guideline, I take all the recommendations we've had of the like 100 plus pages of content they've gotten thus far of analysis and recommendations. And I organize it to just say, okay, this is what I want you working on this month. This is what I want you working on by the end of the year. This is your goals for 2020, 2021. And we'll go out however many years. It makes sense based on like when we see things happening for them. So a lot of clients really like that last piece because then they, they, they could say all this stuff is sort of swirling about in their head and they just still are struggling to see how this will actually happen for them in their lives. And so once we finish our implementation meeting, that's sort of the close of our upfront financial planning process. And then we have another conversation with them and we say, okay, how do you want to work together on an ongoing basis? Um, we always prepare people in our first meeting, say there's a myriad of ways we can work together on an ongoing basis. We will have a subsequent conversation about that. This is what some of them look like. So they can expect it at that point. But then essentially it's sort of like we revisit and, and honestly, Rob and I sort of know from looking at their finances, getting to know them as people where they're going to probably lie once we get to this point, but we still always like to have these open discussions. And we say too, we look at every line of your cash flow. We want to make sure that everything makes sense, including our fees and our services, you know? And so at that point, we say most of our clients work with us at that point on an ongoing retainer. So we do, you know, a flat fee that's paid monthly. And that's where most of our clients fall, unless they do happen to have, you know, assets they want to move over or old retirement accounts or something like that. Then we'll go through all the appropriate steps to bring them on. And and we sort of absorb the financial planning fee instead as a percentage of assets under management, investment management fee. But we still treat them as financial planning clients moving forward, even though we're just managing investments. There are some clients that say, okay, we just sort of need a break from all this. Can we talk to you in six months about working together on an ongoing basis? That happens for sure. There are some clients who just want to meet with us like once a year and they pay us hourly or clients who just reach out when there's a big life event and then we do a project basis for them. So it's really case by case 
for the more ongoing relationship because we want to align that to what makes the most sense for them. But we, for all of our clients, we say from day one, we want to be your trusted resource. And so, I mean, we even just yesterday jumped on with a client who is no longer a client because she really was more on the bookkeeping side and had a business and such like that. But now she has a job relocation and she just needed to jump on and run some things by me. And so we went ahead and, you know, brought her just, you know, sort of as an hourly one-off and just, you know, she gave me a call and she had a bunch of questions she wanted to run through. And so we're happy to do that as well. So on an ongoing basis, like I said, it takes many shapes, you know, really all of our clients, we do the upfront financial plan and then we roll into most of them into that ongoing retainer model. And what are, what is the typical fee for ongoing retainers or how do you set the fee? Like, is it just a standard number for every client? Is there some calculation process like how what what is a typical number and how do you get to that number yeah so it ranges from 150 to 250 a month most of our like singles for example fall in that 150 category it's just easier to manage one person and one party than than you know some of our more complex cases and really it's it, it really comes down to a judgment call for us if there are going to be that 150 200 or 250 based on how much time and how if we're going to be talking to them every month or if they're going to be more self-starters, but needing us quarterly and and for ad hoc requests. So we really gauge it that way. And we tell clients, you know, that that's how we're going to do it. And so they absolutely understand which category they fall into. And, and so if they also have assets, now, how does it work? Like, are you charging a blended, you know, your 150 to 250 a month, plus a separate investment management fee? Or if you get to a certain assets, then we waive it, or you always do a fee offset? Like how do the how do the two come together when someone actually has assets? Yeah. So when they're just starting, like some clients that were just just starting to do some, you know, auto recurring savings for super small account sizes. They, they still are paying that monthly fee and then, a, you know, a smaller uh, percentage assets under management fee. Once account sizes are such that essentially that the percentage AUM would offset what a monthly, what the ongoing retainer is, or it's getting closer, we say, okay, we'll cut back the monthly retainer. And it's really case by case. We're looking at it each year for each client to make sure that it makes sense. But really, it's once the percentage AUM would offset what the annual retainer would be, then we move them over to a percentage AUM at that point. Okay. And what's what's a typical AUM fee if you're actually a people in parallel where you're charging planning for a planning fee and then investments for a management fee? Yeah. So that ranges, again, based on how much managing we're doing, if we're really doing it all in-house or if we're using a third-party manager or if we're using, like for example, Betterment Institutional. Like Betterment would be 50 basis points. Um, Usually, if we're doing like uh, an outsource manager, you're closer to sixty to eighty basis points, and then if you're if we're going to be doing a lot more, the independent management is going to be closer to one percent. Okay, and so in essence, you've got like multiple investment options, platforms, things you're working with. You like you'll send it to Betterment Institutional, or you'll do it yourselves with models. Like how to. Exactly. Yes. And so based on if we're modeling, if we're using a third party or if we're using Betterment, it's three different fee schedules. Okay. So, uh, so wait, so what were the choices? So it's either it's going to Betterment. <laughs> I'm just, I'm always interested in how, how people break these out. So some you'll send to Betterment, some you're doing your own models. And then what's the third path? If we use like, a, like, for example, we use Asset Mark as a third party asset manager, for especially like our larger accounts, stuff that we need much more oversight on, then we'll be then 
that's a TAMP. So we're going to cut our fee back because we're not doing as much of the active management also to offset the TAMP fees. So the net fee to the client is still going to be on par with, you know, all the standards. Okay. So, so is that how you do it? Like you aim for a, an approximate total all in fee to the clients. Hey, when our fee plus the underlying fees are put together, it's going to add up to blank. And then if you use asset mark, they're doing a little more. So you're going to draw a little bit less of that fee betterment. They're doing not quite as much. You'll draw a little bit more. If you make the models, then you draw the whole fee. Yeah. I mean, so the logic is basically our fee is going to be in line with our level of work, but I don't try to get every client to like a total fee number and then back out accordingly. Because like, for example, my Betterment clients, they're always going to be less than any of my other options, just because we're using ETFs and it's Betterment. And those are usually a lot of our early savers. So we're just starting to do some more accrual savings for them, create those accrual savings accounts, you know, for emergency funds and travel. And, and so we're really not putting a ton into that investment bucket. And so those are really small accounts. And, and so, and is that essentially how you decide what to use? I guess it sounds like Betterment's your small clients, simpler investment situation. Like we just want to get them invested in the thing where the stuff happens and nobody has to worry about it much. What drives when you use your own models or when you use asset mark? Sometimes it's based on client preference as well as what really truly, you know, obviously we always want to make sure we're doing what's in the best interest of the client. So it's really based on if we think we could do a better job and be more efficient from an expense side than what a third party asset manager would do. So it's sort of a case by case. You know, we also use SEI private trust company. I like them for our large taxable accounts because they have a lot of tax efficiency that we wouldn't be able to do in house. So, so so that would be a good example of when a client would go to that specific provider. So we just, we're looking at a lot of factors when we make those decisions. Um, But certainly cost is a, a component of it. You know, integration with their other financial planning tools is a factor, you know, and then tax tax planning is a factor as well as the overall investment strategy, of course. So, so does this get difficult just keeping track of all the different clients and different platforms and places they're at and all the different investment explanations that happen? Because now I'm imagining like a, you know, you can have three client meetings in a row and the first one's with Betterman, the second one's with Asset Mark, and the third one's with SEI. So you've got like three completely different preps to do for three different clients that have three different portfolios. Like, is that just, that's the reality of the business or is that a challenge or do you look at that? So for me, yeah, I love having multiple options for multiple clients because there are times where I'm like, you know, this specific provider is not a good fit for this client. I just know it. And that's actually why we have so many providers. We did start with just one. And I would say it's not hard to prep because we sort of more gradually built them on based on what we think served the clients the most. So, so you know, SEI has been in my tool belt for a while. So I'm pretty... Kind of, you, you know what to expect. You I'm know pretty what birthed. the gist is. You know what the story is. Exactly. And then, you know, and so as we build each thing on, we're really confident and comfortable with our other solutions, but we just also know that something might not be the best fit for a handful of our client base. And so we want to find something that's better. And that's why we've added on some now another option. So at that point, it's not like we started with four different options or um, we, we definitely started with one and then we continued to migrate until we got to a point where we 
have what served our client base the most. So to me, it doesn't feel very complicated, but I definitely can see how if someone else is sort of just coming, you know, just launching their business, I wouldn't recommend starting with four different investment solution providers. I would say, find what you think will serve most of your target client the most, get that really, get really comfortable with the platform, the contacts there, the investment solutions, the materials, and then once, and then you move from there into what you think is the next best fit for for your clients. And so, that's sort of how we've approached it. We certainly don't go through all this detail with all the clients. We really explain to them what we think works best for them. And if they have any questions, we certainly can. We'll always be happy to explain all the other options. But for them, they don't have a lot of experience in industry. They would right. just get overwhelmed. You're, you're just taking them to, you know, we use a whole bunch of different things, and I've determined here's the thing for you and why. Mm-hmm. 100%. Okay. And and sorry, and I just have to come back to this because I'm just trying to wrap my head around it then from a from a fee model perspective again. So so Betterment, you're at a lower fee. I think you said 50 bips because it's a, just a simpler approach. Is that your, your 50 and then you pay Betterment out of that or the client pays you 50 and then pays Betterment the Betterment fee? Yeah, Betterment Institutional has a platform fee. So essentially, if you get if you get set up with Betterment, you can, and I explain this to my clients too. They can sign up with Betterment online, like any other person, <clears throat> and then you would be on their retail platform, and that would be twenty five basis points, point two five percent. Or you can work through an through Betterment Institutional through an advisor, in which I send you an invitation to Betterment, and then their platform fee gets reduced now to 20 basis points, 0.2%. But then there's an investment advisory layer on top of it that you're paying to me as your advisor. And I can make changes on your portfolio, and I'll be modifying stuff as we go. And is that, do you ever get clients that say like, okay, then I'm just going to go to Betterment and do it myself. Thanks for the tip. 100%. And I explain that to people, but a lot of people say, no, no, I really want you to be my advisor. And again, a lot of these account sizes will talk through the numbers and like, oh, it cost me 40 bucks a year. You know, it's, it, we're not talking big money here. And then because we're not talking, you know, large account sizes for that solution option, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to just not explain to them again. I'm a fiduciary. I want them to know like all the options and make the best choice for them. So I'm not going to not tell them that that's an option. Well, and, it, and it just um, emphasizes I, it, and that the me, people who hire us are the ones that want to delegate to us. Like they, they don't want to do that stuff. That's why they hire us and pay us. Yes. And sometimes I have people who like, you know, they already had the Betterment account. They want to just stay where they are. 100% fine. Again, for me, it's more important that the value that we're, that our, our brand and our value is being communicated at all times than it is to try to get the extra $120 from this account or, you know, it just, it, it, that's just not, doesn't align with our core goal as a firm. So when you go to the other end of the spectrum and like, it's, it's your own models and you're going to manage it directly. What does the fee structure look like at that point? Are you, I'm presuming then you're charging a little bit more because you have to do more of the work directly. Yeah. And those clients are pretty much at 1% where we're creating a model, we're doing regular rebalancing on it. Um, we A lot of those we also have, you know, ongoing, we do like a lot of dollar cost averaging. We have sort of ongoing money going into those accounts. And so that's much more involved, as you can imagine. And then how do you manage your own models when you're doing it yourselves? So yeah, we have a hand. Yeah, we have, honestly, for that case, we really have a handful of models that we stick to. 
at that point. And then, and if, if that's a good fit for our client's goals and it makes a lot of sense, then we will put them into the particular model that makes the most sense for them. And then, like I said, we sort of do that ongoing rebalancing. We use iRebal and all that fun stuff. Okay. TD. So you're, so models get managed through iRebal and then TD is your custodian for doing all of this. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So, so beyond the investment side, when you talk about this, Hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty dollar a month ongoing fee. What what do clients get on an ongoing basis? Like what do you what are you doing on an ongoing basis? Yeah, so we meet quarterly, they get monthly best practices from us, they get access to us as much as they want. And then in addition, we actually just last year started rolling out monthly reporting to our clients, which I have my power planner working on the first week of the month, pretty much all she does the first week of the month. But what, it's, a, it's a series of screenshots essentially from eMoney because eMoney doesn't have this sort of level of reporting in which we track for them how they're doing in terms of their net worth, net worth growth for the past year, including with the most recent month, how they're doing tracking against their budget and how they're trending towards their goals. And so they get a report each month that's delivered to them um, within the first two weeks of the month. So they have that sort of pushed to them because what I was finding is eMoney does have a lot of this information available, but clients weren't going there to take a look and they just sort of wait till we call them and tell them what's going on. And so the feedback from that rollout has been good. Now it is a, a, a time, um, it's a big time labor commitment, but I, it was something that I felt was really important for our client experience and our communications that we were having. And thus far, it's been really well received. So it's um, so monthly, they're getting a monthly best practice, which is sort of a, a e-blast. I use constant contact that goes out to everyone of what specific, you know, something interesting that I read, some of your content, uh, Michael, uh, that I think that they, that they're, that they would find helpful. Those poor clients. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, they don't get your full content. They get okay. like a one paragraph summary. Okay. Okay. That okay. That's, that's, <laughs> that's merciful. Okay. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. But um, just from the stuff I'm seeing in the industry that I think would be helpful for them to know about, or based on a conversation I had with one or two clients. And so many times I get infant feedback from like two or three people saying, was this for me? Like, were you thinking about me? If, if that's what you want to believe, then yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was like, well, no, I just, I'm having similar conversations with a lot of people and I thought this would be helpful. So I, it's really funny. So we get, we get pretty good feedback on our monthly best practices, the monthly reporting. And then, like I said, the quarterly meetings and access to us, you know, as much so as I'm, needed. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this sort of reporting element of what you're showing clients. So I think I heard like three pieces showing how their net worth is growing over time, uh, showing their spending relative to their budget, and then showing a like progression towards their goals. Those are the three elements. And and is it that you just, you can't get the reports out of eMoney? So you've got to like screenshot things and then update them over time? <laughs> Pretty much. It's uh, e-money. It's all on the client side of e-money. I love e-money, but nothing's without, you know, it's quirks and glitches. So yeah, it it's all available on e-money. Can, can, um, you, can you get network. all of those? You can get all of those charts and pieces directly from e-money? Yeah. Yep. Now I know that she revamps the budget. She like and this is was a, this is my power planner's intuition. She's amazing. If anyone wants a power planner, <laughs> let me know. She liked the way it looked from an appearance perspective. Of like, she has a, an Excel module that she uses. She has one for each client, and so she'll manually like update that part and then 
regenerate the graphic because she just the the screenshot of the graphic in eMoney just doesn't come across the way we would have wanted it to. Everything else though, the net worth history tracker and the goals, the goal report is really just it's literally available in eMoney, both on the client side and then well actually no, the goals the goal tracker, I'm not sure if they added to the advisor side yet. But the net worth history is available on both. And then your fundamental challenge is like these things are literally in eMoney, but the clients won't log into eMoney and look at it. They want you to email it to them. Pretty much. And eMoney doesn't have a way of making it like a download or like, you know, send me, they send some information sort of as like a push, but yeah, there's no way for them to like automatically send it to the client. So I guess guess if any eMoney folks are listening, here's like your development opportunity right here, like turn, turn these reports, you know, turn these reports in the dashboard into things that we can easily configure and automate as emails out to clients showing like the little widget of, you know, here's your, here's your net worth growing chart, which, which to me is a little bit ironic because I mean, tools like uh, personal capital does this already for their, for their clients. I know they, they automate and email out a bunch of those update reports uh, because they're doing it directly consumer facing. Yeah, they do some stuff. Like you can get like your spending like notifications if you're over budget and you can get like a weekly reporting on the spending. But but yeah, I, I think those sort of annoyed clients because it was almost like too much and like you get you know, you get too much stuff and then you stopped looking at it. But having this one consolidated place where and sometimes stuff is miscategorized and then you get an alert and then you you know, and and it was like a, a false alert, if you will. So whereas when you get this, we sort of scrub the monthly transactions to make sure overall it looks like it's not perfect, I'm sure. So she goes through all of that. Let's me know if lets me know if connections need to be updated because that'll sort of go stale and it's hard to stay on top of all the client connections and e-money. And so it's definitely, it's been a, a little bit more of a labor intensive thing to integrate. But again, like I get so many people that write back to those emails and saying either like it drives more communication or more questions. So it reinforces sort of our value to the clients or they like, I have one client that they feel like they're spinning their wheels because they had a lot of debt. And so it's like, as soon as the money comes into the account, it goes right back out to serve either a debt need or a savings goal or whatever. And so he like lives and breathes by this, by his net worth tracker. And he, every month he's like, I can't wait to see my net worth because it's like what I'm holding on to, to make sure I'm actually doing the right thing. Cause otherwise he feels like he's spinning his wheels. <laughs> and that to me is one of the things that's always struck me around the planning work with with younger clients in particular that I think we as an industry and certainly from some of the software providers just underestimate the sheer impact for clients of just the sense of progression of seeing their net worth increase in their financial situation improve. And, uh, you know, we do that to some extent with portfolios, but particular for younger clients, like a big piece of their net worth improvement for years may be reduction of debt, not building retirement assets. And even if they're building assets, it may be house down payments and short-term things and things that aren't necessarily portfolio-centric and just showing them portfolio progression understates the progress and the financial momentum they're having that, you know, e-money at least can show with their with their net worth graph. To me, Money Guy Pro has always been weaker in this area. It's been a frustration for us just as users of Money Guide Pro and our advisory firm, that we can't show clients that sense of progression. And for our retired clients, not as big of a deal. They tend to be more portfolio based. But for younger but for younger clients, I mean, it's it's uh it's been a big gap in 
in the planning software of just showing this progress. Yeah, like when our clients buy a house and they put 100000 down for a down payment, it'll show like your asset summary, essentially, well, your investment summary would go down $100,000, which would seem like a big fall off. But in the net worth graph, we then add in the value of the home, we add in the mortgage, and honestly, more or less, you're pr- pretty even. So it doesn't, so you can still continue to, tr- to watch that trend for growth. When you are pretty much all portfolio based, and that's where most of your assets lie, you're going to see a lot more variability based on market fluctuations and things like that. And that's, of course, a factor when you have severe market downturns like Q4 of last year, even a little bit like this past May. You see a little bit of a, an impact of that, but so many of our clients are really right now savings and paying down debt focus that, again, tracking that net worth is like like so critical and to see where they are year over year and to see like the percentage increase in their net worth year over year, like that's really motivating to keep them on track. And that really reinforces the value and of having us as you know as advisors and providing that level of oversight. And then also because we're not just you know, being advisors, we're also being their cheerleaders and their champions because we're pointing out to them, look at how well you did. And and so in building these reports, so it sounds like your your paraplanner pulls some data from eMoney, it pushes it into Excel so you can kind of prepare this. But I'm just wondering, like, as you're doing this across dozens and dozens of clients, like mechanically, how does it go out? Like does, does your paraplanner ultimately have to make whatever is your eighty individual emails where you're pasting stuff in 80 times is at some point this like batch together in I think you said you're using constant contact like how does a just how does this volume of emails actually get sent out with here's your monthly best practice which I guess is the same for everyone but then here's your report of your you know net worth progress and your spending budget and the rest which is very specific to each client like you, you can't crisscross those people get really upset <laughs> For sure. Right now it is all going out individually to each client. And yeah, and it's we and we use ShareFile for like all of our communications. So there's secure links to download stuff, even though it doesn't always have like it doesn't have any account information. So we do it that way as well. So everyone, you know, whenever there's an upload, it comes through ShareFile and we always send out content through ShareFile as well. So it's like here's your link to view your monthly report. There are a handful of clients that we do attach it as a PDF. Most mostly our older clients that 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 extra step of clicking on the link gets okay. confusing. So some you'll send it out as a PDF because I guess it it doesn't have yeah. you know personally identifiable for It's not like it's got account numbers and social security numbers. It's just like No. It doesn't even have a birthday on it. It's really just their names, yeah, like and, just, and yeah. Charts that show trends and the rest you you load it to their share file vault and send them an email that says, you know, click here to go to your share file vault and here's our monthly best practice on your finances. Exactly. And people always have access to their share file vaults. Everyone has a virtual financial planning binder. And that's like, instead of having, we talked about having deliverable of like all of our content in one binder that they have instead of just sending stuff via email. And uh, but we're like, who wants a big binder these days, right? So we have what's called our virtual financial planning binder. So it's a ShareFire folder that they have access to at all times. They can upload and download to, and every like notes from every meeting, every deliverable we give them, everything goes into that folder. And so they could always go back into that folder and you know look for whatever they wanted to go back and reference as well. So everything's always available there as well for clients. And then what happens with these quarterly meetings what are you what are you covering in ongoing meetings yeah so we have um there's always like an update of just sort of how we're trending you know we take a look at their financial statements and their cash flows and things like that 
and their net worth, all that kind of stuff. We tend to bracket it out just like, oh, say, okay, Q1, we're going to focus on, well, tax planning. <laughs> Q2, we usually talk about some more, like, it's more of an accrual and, and debt repayment focus. Q3, it's more insurance matters. And Q4, it's more of a global because it's like an end of year meeting. So we do sort of try to have categories that we're going to focus on on a general level for all clients. That doesn't apply though for necessarily all the clients we meet with. And then the other thing we're doing is we're we're going back to their original financial plan and we are going through all their like implementation steps, making sure they're on track, recalibrating anything that we need to be. And then of course, updating everything based on what's going on in their lives. You know, oh, we're buying a house. Oh, we're having another kid which is really funny. The whole having the second kid thing, I almost can predict going into the meeting based on all the other conversations we're having. A lot of times, like we know before the parents know that they're having their second kid or stuff like that. Well, you know, it's been it's been two years since you had your first one. And uh, yeah, we should be expecting this announcement anytime now. Right. And they just bought the bigger house. And so we're like, okay, I'm sure this is happening anytime soon. So so it's, it's usually a lot of, so it's, it, we, there's sort of, the way I view it, there's sort of four categories. The first category is going to be the more global thing that we are trying to focus on Q1 for everyone, for example. There's going to be the more general thing for them, which is similar to the content that's in those monthly reports, just touching base and having conversations about that stuff if any are needed. Um, The third thing is going to be cross-referencing back to the financial plan and implementation guidelines and making sure we're actually taking all the action steps and saying, okay, now it's time to apply for disability insurance. You know, do you have a trusted contact? If not, this is who you can work with, make the introduction, this is what the process looks like, et cetera. And And then the last part would be, of course, like revising and making updates, to to anything that needs to be based on, you know, oh, happy we're sitting down with you. Guess what? We just found out we're moving to California because we got a new job opportunity. And so, you know, so it's working through those categories. So not necessarily in that order, but those are sort of the the four things we're looking at when we sit down with people each quarter. And how do you track all of these action steps that you're doing? Because it sounded like you had a pretty detailed, like, here's what we're working on this month. Here's what we're working on this quarter. Here's what we're working on this year, which again, multiplied across dozens of clients that are in different financial planning stages gets gets messy quickly. So how, how do you actually keep track of yeah. all that stuff? It's funny, we were just talking about this in my study group, because I think we were all sort of like, how do you keep track of everything? And someone just gave a recommendation of a new tool that he's trying out. So I'll let you know if it's any good. Um, for me, what I'm doing is like, I have my implementation guideline I don't go back and like edit it and say like, okay, we did this on this date, but I, whenever I look at it, I'm pretty good at, and again, as we grow, this is something I might need to revisit, but I can look at it and just be like, okay, yeah, I know, I know they got the disability insurance. I know we can move on to the next thing. But then for every agenda, the first category is going to be accomplishments since last meeting. And that's going to be all their action steps that they did or, or didn't do. And I have to, you know, push along, push them to do. And then we have our actual current agenda. And then it closes with key client takeaways, which is essentially their homework items. And so that if I just go back to the past few agendas, I'm still actively always tracking where we are on these different parameters. And then anything in particular, that's like a key client takeaway that I know I need to actually be like, I have an action item on, even if that action item is going to be reminding them to do something, it goes right into, um, I use Wealthbox as my CRM. And so it'll just become a task under their client name and wealth box. If it's even just me reminding them about something, it's a recurring task once a week that they get a weekly reminder from me until our next meeting or something like that. And so those those ones end up in our CRM under each client contact as well. So 
it's still evolving, but it's sort of working this way. It's an interesting, just very straightforward framework to your agenda accomplishment since last meeting, which I guess to me is sort of a, a nice euphemism for did you do your homework? Mm-hmm. 100%. Your current yeah. agenda, <laughs> so you can go through your areas like a check in, are they on track with their numbers, update projections, check in on action steps. And then a key client takeaways at the end of here are the action steps you're committing to do over the next quarter that we will then hopefully update the next agenda to say these are accomplishments since last meeting because you got them done. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting flow. Interesting flow. And 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 what does it look like for just setting those key client takeaways like does that tend to be very prescriptive for you you know based on our meeting here's what i think you need to work on next is that a more like hey i'm just going to give you options and you tell me what you want to work on next like what do you what do you find works for that oh we def- i mostly define it based on like our discussion from the meeting and i tell them at the end of the meeting this is what i have for your key client takeaways is there anything else you'd like me to add do you want to talk about any of this but it's pretty much like go to irs.gov create a profile let me know what the irs tax liability is you know it's very it becomes really step by step we try to break it down so that again we know Clients wouldn't be working with us if they had the knowledge or understanding or time and energy to to be doing the stuff on their own. So for me, I try to envision it as like they I want them to be able to just execute on and follow through on steps instead of saying, "Okay, you have to go out and figure out how to, you know, address a tax issue or or an insurance issue or a retirement planning issue." Like I try to to really make it so they just have to execute on something as a, as opposed to having to create a response or create a next step for themselves. Well, I, I like how you fl- frame that, that just clients wouldn't be working with us if they had the knowledge and the time and the energy to do it themselves. So almost by definition, if they're working with us, like at least one of these three things aren't working. Either they don't have the energy and information, <laughs> so like they need the nudge, they want to delegate, they don't have the knowledge, they need to be educated to bring them up to speed to get there. Or they just don't have the time, so they need your support to help them do it and get through it. And with that said, this actually came up again during during that last study group conversation I had. Sometimes these meetings become, you haven't done your homework for the past year, essentially. We're going to do a, like a workshop meeting where we essentially just sit there and we do the work together for an hour. And sometimes it's a little boring, but at least you know it's going to get done. And so if, if it gets to that point, I say, do you want to instead use the next meeting as an opportunity to work through these action items together? At that point, a lot of people will take you up on that and then you at least know it's getting done. And so you are sort of handholding a process, but that has happened a number of times. I love that. You Did you call that a, a workshop meeting? Yeah. That's yeah, a, I, I've called it a few different things. But yeah, that's like one way to phrase it where essentially we're just going to be doing this together. Yeah. And then and then we'll get it done. And when you leave the meeting, you know, when you leave the next meeting after an hour, we know it will be done because we are literally going to do it with you. And then you'll feel better because you know it's done. Right. And a lot of times it's sitting and like watching them do something, but that's okay. You know, I'm okay with that. If that's what's going to serve you you and your finance, personal financial picture the best, then let's do it. I'm game. And and are these meetings then generally in person? Both. Uh, we'll do. We'll just do a screen share. Um, we, we use GoToMeeting for a lot of our virtual meetings. So sometimes it's like you know we go to GoToMeeting. I make them the presenter. They share their screen with me, and I just say, okay, go to this website. Okay, click over there. Mm, try that. Okay, let's download this. All right, next step. Go to go here instead. You know. Very cool. 
so, so where do clients come from for you guys? Like, where are you? That's a really good question. You know, I think this is the challenge for so many when they go out and, and launch a firm from scratch, right? You know, the, the majority of advisors get the majority of their new clients from referrals, starting a new business, not very helpful, no clients to refer you. Right. We started with our two grandfather's accounts and that was it. One of which we had every last dollar. Um, he's one of the ones that passed over the past couple of years. And so, yeah, that was like, we, we didn't start with much. So how does that work in the early years? Like where, where do clients come from? How do you get going when you're starting from zero? Yeah. So I think we sort of had timing on our side, which doesn't really help out someone who's trying to launch now um, in that we were sort of new to this when I, we haven't been doing this that long, I'm, but just for the sort of sub segment of the industry seven years ago, we were two of three certified financial planners in all of Jersey city. Now I don't even know, but there's definitely more than a dozen and there's other CFPs and, and, and XY planning network members in our office space. Um, there's two others. So it's, so it's just changed so, so much. But with that said, like if someone went to CFP board's website and was looking for a CFP in Jersey city, they're going to get me, Rob, or one other guy who works at a big firm, but just happens to have a CFP designation. So I think we got really lucky. And does that mean you were literally like you, were you getting clients from CFP boards, find a CFP professional website? Yeah, I was back in the day. Not so much now. It's the curse of CFP board success is it, good news. We're helping more people. The bad news is, you know, we, we kind of literally end out in, in competition with each other when, when more people are getting found off the same designation. Right. And there's, then there have been a lot more people credentialed as CFPs and all these organizations that are aligned with sort of this broader movement of either being fee only or having more understanding and awareness like a CFP would. So like the NAPFA and all that kind of stuff, the fee only network, all those like their, their membership is growing because more businesses are fall, falling into that business model because of the industry trend. I think, you know, 2008 had a lot to do with it. And then, you know, in gen, and, and then other sort of cultural reasons why there's been this shift, but which you probably can speak to more than I can, but, um, but yeah, so like they, so we got a little bit lucky <laughs> from that respect. And then the other part of it, you know, we really, we had pretty good SEO in the very beginning. And I think we just, it was a really sort of organic growth. I think having the the bookkeeping business did, the two businesses are incredible referral sources for one another. So that really helped us a lot as well in the early days, because it really was word of mouth, friends and family. We ended up on the Facebook moms group you know, so I know we got a lot of clients from that, um, for Jersey city. And then, and then again, being on, you know, a part of all, all of those organizations that are sort of in line with this trend, we, we definitely got some referrals from that. So I, it was, it's a lot of different things. And I, like I said, I, I think referrals is, is huge. It's always my preferred source of, um, of new clients. And it always means the world to us whenever we get one that way. But for us having the planning business alongside with the bookkeeping business, like I said, we might initially have a planning couple and one of them's an entrepreneur. So we start doing their bookkeeping, but then they have how many other friends that are entrepreneurs and we pick up their bookkeeping and their tax prep. And then those people say, 
everything's a mess or we we're working with them. So we see it's a mess. And then it comes up really organically saying, can you help us with financial planning as well? And so those businesses really fed one another beautifully, especially in those early days. And that's really how we grew most organically. And and I'm struck like you, you've talked a few times about the, the bookkeeping business, but you, you, I, I've just noticed like, You've said bookkeeping business, not 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 just tax business or tax prep business, which I feel like is how even the advisors that do these blended financial planning and tax models tend to do it. It's I I find it's often like they're just literally doing tax prep and tax returns, and the returns become an entree to to get in front of clients. But it, it sounds like you're doing like actual small business accounting bookkeeping work. Hundred percent. So, talk yes, to us a little bit are. more about that side of the business, and that's where we're having the hard time scaling that I referenced earlier. <laughs> but same thing, we have about eighty businesses that we're doing monthly bookkeeping for. So we have similar to like an e money integration. We use an accounting um, software where we get integrated with all of their various bank accounts, and we go through and do create monthly balance sheets and and income statements for them and you know payroll journals and all that kind of stuff for them each month and then that way they have end of year they have a full year of books that we can then at the end of the year we can have a full year of books that we pull into their you know tax return as we're seeing it mid-year, we say, okay, we need to make quarterly estimated tax payments because we see what's going on with the business. Maybe it's time to move over to you know, an S-Corp instead of just being an LLC. We, we can have these conversations with them all throughout the year. Instead of it being sort of a one-time-a-year one relationship, it's more ongoing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so how do, how do you charge for the accounting side of the business then? What does that business model look like? Yes, that's about $200 a month for bookkeeping. And then and then we charge a separate fee for their tax preparation. So if they need us to create, you know, W2s for employees or 1099s, we, those are separate fees. If, you know, and then for filing a business return, that's a separate fee as well, and that's sort of based on complexity, of course. And so if you're if you're doing bookkeeping work, I'm presuming this isn't just a like a standard for your Henry clients in general, like this is very specifically b- your clients who are business owners who have some kind of small business that literally need formal business accounting and and managing the books. Exactly. And so there's a lot of overlap, but now that that business has grown so much, there's also a lot of just purely accounting clients. And and how many clients are are over on that side of the business? Then you said there. Are- yeah, there's like eighty businesses, but we file taxes. I think we filed about 300 returns this year. Rob Rob like doesn't sleep or eat pretty much from January through April. Yeah, he's hustling. And that's that's where we're having the problem is scaling that business to maintain the revenue growth. Like on the planning side, you can maintain the revenue growth and scale more easily. Whereas on the accounting side, you just got to do another set of books. You got to file another tax return. It's a lot harder to grow. In other words, like, the planning side, you can increase revenue per client as clients move up, but the accounting side, just the fee is what it is. The only way you grow revenue is you get more clients that pay that fee. And then you need to do more work for those clients, and so you need to hire more people. So are you then looking to hire in the accounting business and at least try to staff up to deal with the with the volume? Because you know, otherwise at this pace, like poor Rob's going to have 500 tax returns next year, and it's going to get really rough for him. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So for tax season, for a while now, Rob's wife has been working with us pretty, you know, really full time and she's been invaluable. So she's um, in musical theater by trade. She's incredibly talented and has had been in a ton of awesome shows and performances, but she was raised by two accountants. So she's been doing like bookkeeping just because her parents told her to at the dining room table since she was like 14. Um, and she's very smart. So, so she has been helping us out with that business. So she's one of our full-time employees and has been since probably at least almost two years, I would say. So, so she's one, you know, full-time hire there. So we definitely keep it all in the family. And then, and then we have two other folks that we're working with part-time to help support that business as well. So, and then during tax season, I help more on an admin level, you know, it really gets to the end, especially where it's like all hands on deck, all hours of the day where we're just, you know, churning out tax returns. So, um, so we have a pretty good, you know, division between the three of us in terms of our competencies. And so that has worked really well. But yeah, it's it's definitely yes, we are we're we're managing that growth. It's just harder. It's like a less it's it's totally scalable, but you have to hire to scale. There's, you know, there's a very direct correlation between the labor and the revenue. And and so talk to us about what it was like as you were taking a leap to launch this from scratch, like walking away from you know, stable, stable salary job environment at large national firm who's, you know, every everybody knows the name into, yeah, we're going to walk away from all of our income and take it back to zero to do this thing from scratch. I had the benefit of having a husband who was gainfully employed. But even at the time when I first left the job, I was making more than he was. And, you know, he was only, he's, he's an attorney. He was only a year or two out of law school. So, so that did definitely helped. But we made a plan from the get-go. We aligned our personal finances such that we knew we weren't going to take any money from the business for at least a year. And so that was, you know, we definitely had accrued the savings to make that happen. And that was a part of the, the initial goal. But that definitely was certainly scary. It definitely felt tight. And that was, yeah, it, but but again, like we put a plan in place, hoping that you know after that year that we'd be able to to meet some earnings figures and have more sustainable take homes and cash flow and support our both of our families. And so, and I have to tell you, between all the family stuff going on, there was a window in there where we were we lagged where we wanted to be, which was very frustrating. And we knew it was because of the family stuff, so we couldn't really complain too much. But now I think we're definitely hitting, hitting the ground running again and and definitely back on track towards all of our expectations and annual goals and stuff. So it's def, it's scary. It's scary. And, and because we're siblings, when something's happening in our family, it affects both of us, not just one party. Whereas if it's a business partner, the other person can pick up the slack for you, knowing that you would do the same thing in turn. And we, we did definitely had a bit of that going on where there were times where I was more involved with family. And he would just step up with the business and vice versa. And we didn't even have to have a conversation. We just sort of knew when each of us were at our breaking points with various constraints that we were managing. And again, that's sort of, again, the beauty of it being a sibling. We would just sort of pick up the slack for the other one in, in either realm that we were trying to manage. So that was really sort of a beautiful thing. And I appreciate having the business because it gave us the ability to take care of what we needed to for our family when we needed to, which was nice. And so did you actually get back to the number you wanted to be at in a year? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely got back about year four, year five, year four. By year four, we were back on track. Year four, you were you were back to where you'd been originally. We didn't we didn't lose. We just didn't grow at the rate that we wanted to. We didn't meet our initial like five year expectation of where we were. We like we we initially created a goal of what we where we would be for every year year zero through five, and there was a window from two to three where we were behind our goal. We we're still growing, you know, as a firm, but just that it wasn't growing at the pace that we would have wanted to, and we were aspiring for it too, and that was very frustrating for us, absolutely. But we understood the balance and the trade off, and like we knew that we're doing a family business. We knew that there's a lifestyle component to it, and you just the takeaway at that point was like we're just fortunate we have this kind of flexibility that we can still have these businesses and and still manage all the other aspects of our lives, you know. Which otherwise wouldn't, I, I think I would have had to like leave my job, just point blank. I don't think I would have been able to to keep up with everything we had going on. And did it become even more difficult to try to get to your, the numbers you wanted to be at when you're starting a business from scratch? And, and not only do you have to grow the revenue and profits, but then you split them. <laughs> you know, like you only get half, like Rob, Rob takes the other half, like, and, and, and vice versa. Really, it, it's, I, I think at least for some advisors I've seen, it's, it's hard enough just to go on your own and try to scrap out the revenue net of expenses to get back to your number. But you you start the business and try to bring in some revenue and net the expenses and try to scrap out a number, and then you only get half of that. Yeah. So years like zero and one, I remember Rob looking at me and being like, look, these numbers are good numbers, but we divide everything by two because we're effectively operating as one advisor. We were doing everything together. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Yeah, that that sucked in the earlier. There's no sugarcoating. <laughs> yes, that was tough. But again, now that we have the two businesses, we have different salaries from the respective businesses. And so I think it's coming together in a way that makes a lot of sense. And like the broader picture definitely makes a lot of sense. It just was getting through those those years, like two to four, you know, zero to one stinks, but you expect it to stink. That that like two to three, I would say yeah, two to three and a half, two to four, like that's where you sort of have to have a lot of faith and focus and to to hope that you're gonna get to where you wanna be for for the long run. So and I think that's across the board. I feel like whenever you talk to any other advisor, they do say the same thing about those years. And we just had a lot of other factors going on to only make that that much harder. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I see that a lot. You know, it's it, the launch year is rough for everyone and it just always is. That's that's kind of the reality. But then you know, you 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 grind away, you get a hopefully a couple of clients. There's at least a little bit of revenue by the end of the year and then you go into year 2 and it's basically just as bad as year 1 cuz no one really knows you well enough yet to start referring. Your clients are too new to really give you much volume of referrals. All the people that you were going to ask that were like low-hanging fruit, you asked them last year, so they're already on board. And year two often ends up being just as grindy as year one. And and it's often not until three plus that at least a little bit of momentum starts starts to build. Yeah, I think there was just a little lag for us there in that specific window. But I mean, that's pretty much what happened with us too. <laughs> how How long did it take you to get back to the income that you'd walked away from in the first place? I mean, probably year five. And and how do you look like? How do you look at that now, going back and saying, "Wow, if I'd if I just stay where I was for those five years, like five more years of salaries, five more years of additional 
savings? Like, do you do you look at it that way? No, it's not even a thought. <laughs> no, I don't even consider it because. And again, I, I mind you, I had two babies during this window. On top of everything else, which like I wouldn't have even been able to have. I mean, I was on when I was working midtown. I was on the six eighteen train out of my town every morning. And granted, I was going to school at night and stuff like that. I'd take the 951 train back two nights a week. But otherwise, I was I still wasn't getting home till 738. And yes, you have a maternity leave. But it's still, I, I just couldn't fathom what that looked like for me introducing myself to motherhood with just that kind of schedule and that kind of demand. And that's, it's definitely a different story for Rob, but he, I think he was also at a different earning level because I was further in my career and things like that had happened. So, so for me, it's just not even a conversation because there was so much else that we got out of this family business in these like critical years for me with like such young children that I happily will trade off that additional value. And then I think also from a business a business standpoint, I think we got really lucky with timing. And I think do, starting the launching when we did six over six years ago um, was awesome in terms of what our business potential was and what what we what our business potential is and you know will be moving forward because we have we were sort of sort of at the front of a movement and I wouldn't trade that for anything either. So between like the family value experience and being able to be, you know, an active participant in what we view to be a really awesome early movement, I, I think that says that really helps it, not, I don't even have to justify it. Like I said, it's not even a conversation in my head, but, but if I had to, that would definitely outweigh like the additional few years of, of income that I would have gotten if I stayed a little bit longer. And my boss said to me, you'll make more money staying here. I said, for a few years, absolutely. I said, but that's not, I'm looking for the long run and I'm making a plan for myself and for my family and for my future that working a traditional corporate lifestyle just wasn't going to meet. And I knew that. I know I like to work hard, but I knew I needed to do it in a way that was more aligned with my core values. And so, yeah, like we work late at night and we have virtual meetings almost every night at 7.30. My five-year-old still has a seven o'clock bedtime because I need to take virtual meetings almost every night at 7.30. So like there's definitely, and I, he can definitely have an eight o'clock bedtime. And if I don't have a meeting, I'll let him stay up late. But I mean, it like I know I don't mind working hard and I don't mind working finding this balance between family and work, but I need to have that as an option. Whereas if I was working corporate, I wouldn't have seen my kids. <laughs> Let's just call it, I mean, babies have early bedtimes. I just, I, I, you know, I just don't know how that would have worked in a way that, that was, you know, could, you know, I see women do it all the time. I looked at the, up at them and I admired them for it. And I just said, I don't know that I would be happy with that. I am struck though, that I, frankly, I know all, a number of female advisors in particular that have uh, it kind of gone the like the almost exact opposite view which was that they were af afraid to launch their own firms because they wanted to start a family in the next couple of years and were concerned about the impact of launching a firm and having babies in the first few years and is it better to stay where I am and do the traditional maternity leave thing there and then I'll go out later when my kids are are young but at least I'm I'm through the through the pregnancy phases like was that a factor for you or you just don't look at it that way you wanted the freedom in the first place yeah it's harder to juggle like i was definitely 
taking client calls or even virtual meetings and like nursing my baby and just people didn't see it because it was like face up. Yep, out of frame. Out of frame doesn't count. <laughs> I, I I was definitely taking client meetings and I had him in this little rocker at my feet and I was bouncing him with my one foot and then and taking my client meeting, you know. So it was a lot to juggle in those moments. I was sometimes doing full financial plans with one hand, sort of like, you know, what's it called when you use just your forefinger the way old people do? <laughs> <laughs> to to hit all the different letters. Oh, oh yeah, like uh, finger finger pecking the, the finger yes. pecking. Yeah, through a full financial plan because I had a sleeping baby on my arm for for three hours. But but like so yeah, it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was easy for a second, but I didn't mind hard, and I wanted options and I wanted flexibility, and that's where I placed value. Whereas I didn't work. You know, I worked about an hour from home. Otherwise, I knew I had to be in face. Like some people have more six month maternity leave, for example, or have a lot more ability to work from home and stuff like that. I knew that where I was and I was exploring other options at the firm in case we didn't decide to move forward with the business that would afford me more flexibility. And some people have that. So if they have that, then that might make a lot more sense because it's not easy juggling the two by any means, but I just knew I wanted that as an option. And I didn't see another good option right in front of me. And then I also had this commitment to this like family business and this sort of like broader vision for family businesses that I wanted to launch with my brother. And I just knew that that would be the time and I wouldn't let the constraint be me wanting to have kids. As you're now six going into seven years on the, on the building the business, uh, what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm not prepared for that. Honestly, even though I have my brother, probably just like that, it can be lonely. Like we have our study group, we have each other, but we still are always, I mean, I was always in, before this, I was, well, obviously in school and stuff, but then I was working on a desk with hundreds of people surrounding you and, and running this business. Yeah, I'm on the phone and I have other people I could turn to, but a lot of the day you are sort of in your own space. We also have co-working offices we go to, but again, I only go a few days a week. So it's a lot of it. I love the flexibility to be independent, but that can sometimes be just a little lonely. That phenomenon has always struck me. It was uh, like part of why I was involved in founding next gen early on of just the, like the isolating experience of being a, uh, an advisor, even within a larger firm, because you just you can get stuck in your own your own firm, your own four walls of your cubicle or office, and sort of lose perspective of the what happens in the rest of the advisor world outside of your outside of your firm. And it was one of the drivers for for Alan and I when we were looking at doing X Y Planning Network as well. That that same sort of phenomenon of of you know, we jokingly call it now, like you you can be independent but not alone. If you if you create some community or join some community, obviously that's what we were trying to build because it just gets so so isolating. I, mean, I think that was even the origin of a lot of the membership association growth in the in the early days of groups like NAPFA and, and especially FPA. Like FPA grew when the advisor world went went independent broker dealer because everybody became independent and then became really isolated and wanted wanted community and camaraderie and and you know gathered around these association groups based on whatever their values and focus was that's where they that's where they landed so imca built and napfa built and fpa built as the as the independent movements grew because otherwise it it gets lonely yeah 
And I think that's really, you know, you're, you're lonely and you're really responsible for what you do in that lonely window, like on the whole business operation, like what's happening with everything. It's different than when you're just like a cog in a greater, you know, a greater wheel. But like when, when you know that so much is resting on your shoulders and you sort of feel, I don't want to say you don't feel alone because like, I know I have people I can turn to in a heartbeat and like I've group text messages with different study groups I've been in over the years and people that I know I can turn. And this is all, and that's all thanks to XY, right? But so it's not like I'm not alone. Like I have people I can turn to, but still most of your day, you you feel, you might feel lonely depending on what's going on any given day. And so that was, I think, something that was worth managing and then sort of surprised me. What was the, what was the low point of the journey? Honestly, probably conflict with Rob. If he and I were at each other for whatever reason, that crushes me. That crushes me. And there's been a few spats over the years and I, it's going to happen. It's going to continue to happen. But, but because we're business owners, it does open the window for more conflict. And given that we've only had a few like good fights over six plus years, I say we're actually doing pretty good. I'm good with that. But when that happens, you know, yeah, that, that I think is my, I can actually very confidently say that would, that would be my low point. Interesting. And, and what works through them then? Time reaffirming our core values, both in our sibling relationship, as well as our professional relationship. And then just sort of proving to one another that we are committed by just sort of doing the work, you know, like just doing, doing by him doing his job and me doing my job. I think it's like that alone also just communicates like I'm in this with you. We're committed. We're going to do this. We have the same goals and visions. Like, and 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 at the end of the day, we're siblings and we love each other and we trust each other. And that's that's what matters. That's what matters most. So I think it's like a little, and that's where the time component helps. Not because it puts the incident further away, but because with every action we take in between the incident and where we are today, it's been a step to reaffirm all that messaging. I guess. Then, then what comes what comes next from here? for the business? Hiring, more hiring. <laughs> so we can continue to scale up. And then I think like, you know, I want to get a little bit more involved with just creating some more content out there again for both businesses. And, you know, I have, you know, sort of more internal goals on investment recommendations and continuing to streamline operations, things like that. But I don't know that we have, we have an app that we sort of worked on that we need to revisit and see what we can do with that. So we have lots of stuff that is, you know, in the purview, but I wouldn't say like anything, there's not like one big thing that we're like, this is our next goal for the year. It's lots of things that we sort of have in motion that, that we're going to continue to, to develop and build out and, and, and make scalable. That's really, we're trying to manage the growth. That's very much the phase we're in right now is managing the growth. Yeah, I uh, look at this a lot as firms get get started and and grow and go through their life cycles, and and I find there is sort of this consistent process that first out of the gate, like it's just the early growth phase. The only thing that matters is getting some clients and revenue in, so that like you survive in this thing. It doesn't really matter what tools and technology, anything else you use, because if you don't stick around long enough for that stuff to get used, it doesn't matter. That you just have to get clients. Then you get your first few. Then you go into what I usually call the refinement phase, like. Okay, we're getting some clients. 
but our process could probably be a little better. And like, we're doing some plans, but I think I want to tweak how we do our planning. And like, you just, you start refining the stuff that you do because people are showing up and they're paying you, but you, you realize there's ways that you, you, you could do some of it much better. And then at some point you get pretty comfortable with what you're doing and that you're growing and where the growth is coming from. And you, you can always make incremental tweaks, but you really just hit this managed growth scaling phase of, okay, now we just have to figure out how to do what we're doing for a whole lot more people with a whole lot more repeatable systems because there's going to have to be more staff that do it if we're going to expand the reach. Yep. And that's 100% been our journey and where we where we are right now. <laughs> so, So for advisors who are maybe looking at getting started or taking the leap that you did seven years ago, what advice would you give advisors looking today to to make that leap from I've been in the business for a while and I've got some experience, but I kind of want to go out on my own and do this planning thing, you know, do, do this independent firm thing myself. Like what, what would good advice would you give to someone looking to make that leap today? I would say first be your own first client, which is a little tough, but like, and if you have a spouse, walk them through it. I'm the worst planner for my spouse. I got to tell you, I really, really, everyone keeps saying it, but I need to get like another financial planner. He would walk through the door one day and I was reviewing the monthly reporting. He's like, what's that? I'm like, oh, it's, you know, this is what I send out to all the clients. He's like, I would like to get that. I'm like, oh, I can, I can do one for us. And it like didn't even cross my mind. So it's that kind of thing where, where make sure you have your own your own house in order. Do not expect income from the business that first year because if there is any, you probably need to be investing it into the products you couldn't afford or the software you couldn't afford in the very beginning or getting an office space or whatever the case may be, some marketing content. Make sure that you can position yourself for that for that first like you know year zero through one, and really walk through the process and see what you think you know that would look like. And then I would just say put your ducks in order, obviously put a business plan in place, but then be you like when you position, when you first position yourself. When Rob and I started this firm, we felt super young. We were, I don't know, like 27 and 24, I think. And we were doing something very different and we were siblings. And so we sort of hid that on our first website. We didn't come out and say that we're siblings. You know, we weren't, we didn't 100% embrace our story because we were almost afraid and we almost wanted to look like all the other financial advisors, even though we knew we were doing something different. And as we've evolved, we've really learned to embrace our story, who we are, where we are. And you'd be, you'd be amazed as to how wonderful the reception is from the candor. Like people are trusting you with so much personal information and content in this specific field that the more sincere and honest and genuine you can be and embrace your own story and put it out there to the world, the better a reception I think you will oh, get. I love it. And, and it's so true. Like we we ask clients to be so vulnerable and sharing, you know, what is like the ultimate taboo subject right now. Like tell me about your money and what you make and where your dollars go. That so a lot to be said for being willing to make ourselves a little bit vulnerable first. So we definitely learned that early on and then we sort of redid our whole website and we have the back-to-back sibling pose on it and all that kind of stuff. So super cheesy. Check it out. <laughs> so, and, and we'll make sure we include a, a links out to in the, uh, in the show notes for people who want to take a look. This is 
episode 133. So if you go to kidsus.com slash 133, we'll, we'll have links out to, to Dana's website and the, and the sibling pose. <laughs> so as we wrap up, this is a podcast around success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just literally that word success means different things to different people. And so, you know, you're, you're building the successful business and getting traction, but I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself? That's a really good question. And that answer has changed a lot since I've become both a mom and a business owner all sort of at the same time. Because I think I used to associate success with like getting through my tasks for the day and just feeling like I'm checking the right boxes. And then as a business owner, things come up left and right. And again, as a mom, you get a sick kid. My my little guy had seven ear infections this winter. It was just like, <laughs> yeah. And we moved and my big guy had the flu twice. And so it was like, it was just a rough winter for us. So I think that had to certainly become redefined into just choosing your moments. Like in your moment, are you applying yourself in the best way that you can to drive what's most important? And so I definitely fall prey to responding to the more like quick, but what's the different categories? I'm misplacing it right now. But so like there's the, the, time sensitive. And then there's like the big picture, higher priority stuff that's not time sensitive. And I'm really good at doing like just the time sensitive stuff, but not the bigger picture priority stuff. Like put the big rocks in the thing first, not the little pebbles. Yeah. We, we get the Alan, like secondly, like we, we get to the important and urgent stuff, but then we never get to the important, but not currently urgent stuff. hundred percent. That's, that was big for me. So then making sure I put a plan in place to prioritize those important non-urgent things and then just like make it daily tasks kind of thing. So then even if it doesn't get done today, it'll get done in the next few days. I'm always like a little behind, but just so knowing that those things aren't just being buried anymore and that they're being addressed, that to me feels like I'm working towards success. It's hard to ever say it's been like, you know, that you're there, but that's how I would say I'm achieving success is knowing that I'm working towards the things that are the important, even the non-urgent, bigger picture things in my life. I love it. I love it. And thank you for just joining us and sharing some of the, the story and the journey on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>